Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on February 1st, 2021, honoring the work of Jack Halberstam, a professor of gender studies and English at Columbia University. Professor Halberstam studies queer and gender theory, as well as popular culture and media. In 2020, Professor Halberstam published Wild Things, The Disorder of Desire, a book that offers a new history and theory of the category of wildness. Rather than understanding wildness as a negative category, the simple opposite of what the dominant modern culture deems to be civilized or orderly, Professor Halberstam explores the possibility that wildness can be a source of new ways of being, knowing, and associating with others. Wild Things is a wide-ranging investigation, encompassing zombie films, novels about falconry, pet ownership, and even the children's book Where the Wild Things Are. By thinking wildly about cultural texts and practices, Professor Halberstam searches through the scraps discarded by the Project of Civilization in order to find material for building a new world. First, we will hear Professor Halberstam talk more about wild things and the category of wildness. Then, we will hear a response from Audra Simpson, a professor of anthropology at Columbia University. So in my time, uh, just to sort of set up some of the claims of the book, I'm, I'm just going to offer um, five ideas from the book about the category of wildness. And so the first, the first claim really that I make is that we all sort of have a sense of what wildness is um, because we've all been well-trained by a kind of colonial uh, mindset in which a civilizational discourse comes to uh, to to save us from the wild and from the peoples that populate the wild and are defined by you know savagery uh, and by their distance uh, from a civilized order. But apart from serving this kind of negative category in relationship to civilization, I propose, and we'll see how successful this uh, proposal is that wildness can exceed this negative function. And by exceeding that negative function, it can both offer a critique of civilizational discourses on the one hand, and on the other hand, it can begin to tear away at what Foucault called the order of things and dig into a kind of disorder that unites all kinds of groups from queer people to indigenous uh, populations, and the way in which black populations have been perceived within uh, uh, civilizing orders. So wildness, we'll see whether this holds up, but it's possible that wildness holds within it a very different way of associating uh, group identities. There's a version of this narrative that I'm telling about the wild in a children's book from which my title is taken by Morris Sendak that many people, at least in the US, uh, are raised on this book. And 
I think that the allegory that Sendak's uh, children's book lays out is a kind of blueprint for my book. And so it, it's basically telling us that, of course, it's a little boy. It's a, a little boy rebels against the domestic uh, uh, nuclear family, the heterosexual household, and most particularly the mother, and journeys off to find another place where he does not have to come under the sway of the domestic. He finds this other place, and it is, you know, very specifically a place of wildness. And as the colonial traveler that he is, he decides that he will be the king of the wild things. But that proves to be as dissatisfying as being the subject in the domestic home. And so he leaves and goes home. The question that the book sort of leaves us with, though, is what is the wild to the wild things, okay? We know what the wild is to the little boy who escapes the domestic home, but what is the wild to everyone else who is not the small colonial traveler? And is it just a place of ruination or are there other possibilities for life there? And in some ways, that's the question that my book pursues. Okay, so the second claim I make is a simple claim, which is if we agree with Foucault that there is an order of things and that that order of things was established by a mania for classification and expertise that comes up around the 18th century, then there must also be at least the remnant of a disorder of things. Um, and it's that disordering um, set of knowledges that my book um, seeks to pursue. The disorder of things is also part of what Sylvia Winters called the coloniality of being. And it's a disorder that is ascribed racially to particular groups and is contained uh, in relationship to those uh, groups. Um, and the order of things then lives on within the civilizing mission that is taken up by uh, canonical literatures uh, and aesthetics. So this second point that I'm after is if wildness is the disorder of things, where do we find the archive of disorder? What does it look like? And the answer for me, weirdly, was that it sometimes actually appears in the canon of you know, what has been designated as the great tradition, but it bursts out of this canon and produces other kinds of aesthetics. So that takes me to point number three then. What other kinds of aesthetics does the pursuit of wildness lead us to? And in um, a chapter on, um, of all things, Rite of Spring, and this is where you kind of see this, this volley back and forth between a kind of canonical uh, set of aesthetic practices and then uh, the wild response to that aesthetic, in relationship to that text, I argue for an aesthetic of bewilderment. And bewilderment is one of those great terms. I mean, it holds literally the wild within it, bewilderment, to become wild. But in um, earlier moments in its etymology, bewilderment meant getting lost. And in that sense, it sort of opens onto what you might call an, uh, another kind of knowledge or an anti-epistemology, something that wants to push back on knowledge and find its way to being lost. Uh, but it's also bewilderment is also something that wants to confuse and contest. And that's what we find in this series that I trace of responses to the Rite of Spring coming from the work that I pursue here in this chapter is uh, Kent Monkman, Kent Monkman, 
uh, is a queer Canadian Swampy Cree two-spirit artist who in his work has literally painted a response to European modernism. And there is barely a painting in Kent Monkman's oeuvre that is not a response to uh, modernism and to a particular history of fine art that has been told. In one particular performance, however, he offers a response to Rite of Spring. And I originally sort of got interested in Rite of Spring as this kind of very interesting queer collaboration between Nijinsky, Stravinsky and Diaghilev, all of whom were sleeping with each other. Um, and then we're producing this crazy ballet slash symphony about a fertility rite of all things, right? A fertility rite in which the women and the men are never on the stage at the same time. And I was sort of content with that. But as I dug into the history of Rite of Spring, I realized that when the audience responded in a very charged and uh, disruptive way to the original performance in 1913, one of the things they were responding to was the fact that they could hear in the music and see in the ballet, the disruptive presence of a, an indigenous gestural vocabulary that had been lifted and appropriated both in the music and in the ballet. What Ken Monkman does is he responds very directly to the appropriations that make up Rite of Spring. And in 2008, he performed a dance in response to a George Catlin uh, painting titled Dance of the Badash. And uh, in response to the painting, he produced a whole set of performative canvases uh, that were um, produced from Buffalo Hide, and he performed in his alter ego of um, Miss Chief Eagle Testicle. And the music that he performed to was created by a indigenous Canadian musician and was based upon Rite of Spring. So I use that response to Rite of Spring to suggest that bewilderment is not, you know, it, it's aesthetic completion comes around when the person who has been designated or the group that's been designated as wild is able to speak back through the canon and in the process dismantle it. The book turns uh, in its second half, there's a, a sort of pivot chapter and the pivot chapter is on um, an epistemology of the ferox. And obviously an epistemology of the ferox draws heavily on Eve Sedgwick's epistemology of the closet. For Sedgwick, modern systems of knowing depend heavily upon the homo-hetero binary and upon a binary of secrecy and revelation. I propose, along with many other people who have contested this as the only kind of uh, significant binary, that the domestic wild binary is as significant to our understanding of desire. And to bolster that claim, I explore a weird subgenre of writing by mostly gay men from the middle of the last century involving falcon narratives. And an incomplete uh, account of this subgenre would include the Peregrine by J.A. Baker, 1967, Glenway Westcott's Pilgrim Hawk, 1940, uh, Robert Duncan's poem, My Mother Would Be a Falconress, 1968, Genius Child, Langston Hughes, 1937, um, a 1968 book by Barry Hines called A Kestrel for a Knave, and so on. All, this topic is taken up most recently, however, by Helen MacDonald, who includes in her book, H is for Hawk, an account of T.H. White, who wrote uh, The Goshawk in 1939, in which he tells his 
a story of trying to and failing to train a hawk. And she says his inability to train his hawk is indicative of his inability to tame his gay desire. My argument, however, is that he's not just sublimating his queerness. He is actually interested in the hawk and what he sees in the hawk that he wants his desire to rest upon is the fact that the hawk is always feral, no matter how much it is trained. And feral, rather than wild, feral means something that can never be tamed. Not something that can be tamed and then returns to the wild, something that can never be tamed. And T.H. White says, the word feral had a kind of magical potency and it allied itself with two other words, ferocious, free, and then he gives more words, fairy, a queer word, fey, also a queer word, aerial, and other discreditable alliances, which he said ranged themselves behind the great cord of ferox. So my question in that chapter is, what if we organize our understanding of desire in relationship to the ferox rather than the closet? To close out the book, I turn to the zombie as a figure of the untamed, the wild, the irrepressible, the id, but also the zombie as it appears in, in shows like The Walking Dead is quite clearly an amalgamation of racialized others, um, including African-Americans and most obviously um, indigenous uh, peoples. And there's a kind of interesting, restless vengefulness that emerges within uh, zombie uh, fantasies that are of, I think, should be of great interest to us. And I follow Jody Bird in thinking about how the zombie plays out an imperialist narrative within which the indigenous figure is part of a living death. Okay. But the other figure in this book, and this is where I'm going to end, is the pet, the family pet. And this is probably where the book turns from a kind of semi-literary, you know, exploration of wildness to a, a, a probably deeply annoying polemic um, against pet owning. And I'm open to your questions, comments, and objections, but I leave you with the idea that the the zombie you live with is your cat, your dog, your your fish. It is the form of the wild that you have taken into your home, domesticated, and in the process told yourself that you are a great person uh, for bestowing love upon this creature. So the wild, the wild, uh, you know, within that analogy is is the the place in which uh, the human exercise against which the human exercises its dominion. Next, we will hear a response to Wild Things from Audra Simpson, a professor of anthropology at Columbia University. Professor Simpson studies settler colonialism and indigenous politics in the United States and Canada. In her comments, she elaborates on the category of wildness as it was used to oppress indigenous people. Professor Simpson reflects on two more examples from Professor Halberstam's book, Isaac Julian's 1989 film Looking for Langston, and the paintings of the Cree artist Kent Monkman. Professor Simpson also challenges Professor Halberstam's critique of pet ownership. At the end, we'll hear Professor Halberstam respond to Professor Simpson, and then talk more about wildness, blackness, and the 1968 zombie film Night of the Living Dead. Zach Halberstam's new book, Wild Things, offers a simultaneous account and analysis of an 
what I'm imagining sometimes as an episteme, it's obviously much more than that, very varied set of ideas that lays off to the side, the conceptual and what some have thought of as often territorial place of wildness. A site and he tells us at times a methodology, a land without borders to sound trite, but really at the end of the book, a field of possibility. In this treatise on wild desire, we are brought through cases where the line that divides life from death, value from unvalue is collapsed. In the end, in a call for, an, for not an aesthetics of unart or disuse or detritus, but instead for political solidarity. The material for this book is itself uh, and could be imagined as an unwieldy, unruly cachet of materials. Ballets, poetry, diaries, large oil paintings, T.S. Eliot, Anne-Florice Philippe, Maurice Sendak, the shitting dogs I'm imagining of Brooklyn, knowing Jack's specificity, and their humans sipping lattes, the secret life of pets, chronicles of loneliness and longing, falcons, falconeers, and many critical theorists to move us along the way. The argument here resting and moving through these cases that comprise the particular archive is that wildness is its own site of liberatory disorder. And it's quartering off not only from what is tame, and in this of course we might first go to imagined as civilized, but what is normative, normatively embodied, normatively sexed, what is biologically determined, what is easily contained in either, or never easily contained, but imagined to be easily contained in either colonial taxonomies of difference and order, then becomes in this elaborate argument, a site of the juxtaposition, but also wild imagining and possibility. It is hard not to read this as a location, as a place of sorts. In order to get you there, you sometimes though are placed there literally and empirically, I'm gonna sound like an annoying empiricist. You are placed there by law, by the police, the evolutionary biologist or the sexologist's pen or imagination. They're deeply negating versions of this placement beyond even carcerality or with carcerality the kind that use the definition of wild or savage to place you away from your family on an auction block to render your land or water like property, you as property, as not human, as not worthy of recognition as human. That is a movement to wild that is fundamentally not liberatory and is lived still in the afterlives of slavery and the afterlives of dispossession accounting for the differential forms of flourishing accorded to some partially accomplished with, with recourse to this definitional toolkit, human, not human, white, black, race, colonized, over there, always away, where the wild things are. For native people, for black people, this wildness as a category of apprehension has been a curse and a cause, a cause for incarceration, misapprehension, outright theft of land, theft of labor. To be recognized as an Indian at one point in Canada was to be defined as to live in a savage state on the land in a different language. Perhaps we can add something like by the chase, although it was not the language of law. But it was in the law to be known in this way. And so it was that some white men were recognized as Indian because they lived like Indians. 
in a savage state by the chase. That lasted for one year before the Proto-Indian Act amended and the was amended and the logics of biology, or rather more specifically, blood hemmed them out. And it was the Indian women who married them that became not wild and lost their Indian status for marrying out and marrying into civilization, effectively leaving their state of nature and entering civilization as the like property wives of their white husbands. No longer Indian, but brown. They were also then without Indian status and lost then the right to live on their reserves, to hunt on their, uh, in their territories. Their, their children lost those rights as well and they would be escorted off their reservations for trespass if they were to visit their families. They could be arrested, needless to say, for trespass. I leave this heteropatriarchal and sex legal case of journeying away from wildness, from savagery, to turn to the case of a different sort of journeying, away from domesticity to the voluntary, albeit punished, and aspirational trip, trip of Max in where the wild things are. A different century, a different kind of person, a different sort of text where we can see one's punishment and loneliness turn to a place of otherworldliness and Max's own dominion over the wild things, a site of wild sovereignty. The course of this journey or method and the processes laid with these cases in Halberstam's book and these cases, Halberstam tells us at several points, is limbed with queerness. But a queerness he reminds us also that at times seems irretrievable or indecipherable as indicators. And here I'm thinking of the reading we just heard of, of Langston Hughes' life via uh, Isaac Julian, that may not appear in ways that are recognizable to contemporary readers as queer. Julian offers instead what Jack, uh, Jack Halberstam describes as a rep representational maelstrom, in which queerness along though with white normativity disappears into the night, Jack tells us. Taking up Brent Edwards' discussion of the vexation of trying to account for meaning with archival fragments, and of course, Idea Hartman's organizing framework of wayward, both to account for and address the problem of the archive, always impartial for some, actually probably for everybody. Hughes's life and its evidentiary traces may or may not organize itself or to readers under the sign of homosexual, and he may not in fact have wanted it to do so. Hughes's intent sometimes aside, Halberson places his wild nights in Harlem within the method and a disordered and ferocious treatise on the wildness within. Now, the more recent uh, 21st century Cree with a C painter and performance artist, Kent Monkman stands in Labutin's heels aside Hughes as both a figure of something and a maker of things. Halberson argues of indigenous bewilderment one who is rephrasing the representational art of the masters, so to speak, and as Jack pointed to in his opening comments, to modernity itself, to speak with, a subversive, with subversive scenes of sex sequestered in the landscape painters of the high settler colonial period. I called it the high settler colonial period. It is modernity, right? Modernism, sorry. Only with Indians on top, right? And I say that nudge, nudge, wink, wink, yes, top that way, on top. See that art. This is cleverly smuggled counter history, a cleverly smuggled counter history of desire, but is one that is harnessed as well to a long-term project on art history itself, flipping again the script on who is on top and what the message within portends. Like Hughes, I would say Monkman stands in a strange position vis-a-vis -vis an 
expected, and here I'm invoking, yes, Phil Deloria's notion of expectation, history of queer utterances, in that the work is so obviously informed, I read it this way, and Jack and I will talk about this either now or later, by a hyper-awareness of what is expected. Both the savagery of indigeneity and the savagery of queer romance and sex. Monkman's bewilderment, I read as an enchantment, I would argue, with Western art form. I think Jack reads this very differently. And what the mastery of that form advances. So in order to smuggle the surprise of overt, staggeringly queer sex and recognizably queer forms and figures, like the ostentatious Miss Chief Eagle testicle, this is achieved through the medium. This of high art. This has offered Monkman power and entree into mainstream circles. Please go see his work at the Met if you, if you will, but has also allowed him to stop smuggling and now render other stories. Like the scream, which Jack discusses. Um, this is, however, a different world than that of Baldwin, a different time. And Monkman also simultaneously wears the drag, perhaps, of a cis native man one that is differently positioned in the order of things than even a cis native woman. And here I'm not losing sight of the range of gendered possibilities in native life or non-indigenous life. So the wildness is definitely more than gestural, but it also contains itself in a way that I think allows for, again, this sort of performance of enchantment, a smuggling project that archives now near contemporary instances, near contemporary instances of an ongoing colonialism something that's not very sexy, right? That's not very titillating, um, that doesn't speak to his queer public the way the earlier work did. Rendering, as Halberstam discusses in the screen, imaged as the polyphonic scene of children being torn from their mothers by the state. The men in those red coats are the Royal Canadian, Canadian Mountain Police. This was and is the horror, the menacing and venal wild of Canadian settler colonialism. I have so much to ask Jack about animals and about the liberatory disorder of life promised or hoped for at the end of the book. And I want to lend my own question with matter again from indigenous political life, one that has been worked upon and defiled by colonial governments that first wanted land or sometimes water and then came for people, children and mines. We have also learned from historians like Bobby Etheridge, Andres Rizondez, the sometimes anthropologist, sometimes historian, autobiographical writer Deborah Miranda of the terrible legacy also of Indian enslavement, rarely mentioned in mainstream accounts of history that afflicted Native families and polities as well, as people were moved before and with Africans to theaters of labor in the Bahamas and elsewhere. So we join each other indeed, as Jack tells us, in different ways in these undead taxonomies of brutal differentiation and indentured negation, sometimes under the sign of the wild or the non-human, the child, the animal, the savage, etc. When I think of animals, though, I want to press on animals. And I, I, this is an undeveloped thought, but I just want to invite Jack and others to think with me on this, is as animals as ordering principles rather than signs or symptoms of disorder, as they organize for some, and we learn this over and over again from hunters, they, uh, Cree hunters and the likes, they organize for some, actually many indigenous peoples, they organize relations to family, to water, they hold knowledge, they transmit it, and so are killed or not killed differently, are respected, are themselves repository of knowledge, etc. They can seem not so wild, I want to say, 
Um, and I'll simply leave it at that. I enjoyed this book very much, Jack. I learned so much. And I'll be thinking with you and your archive and my fellow panelists for a long time to come. Thank you um, so much for these uh, responses to what is a kind of, I want to say deliberately, but who knows, disorganized book in the sense that a wild archive cannot, by definition, you know, be a set of texts that obviously just sort of interlock and one leads to the next. It's not, it's not at all obvious going in that when we start talking about Ride of Spring, we'll end up with zombies, you know, and that that is both, a, I mean, a strength of the book probably, but also um, it's also where it can completely collapse. You know, there's, there's a lot uh, happening. That is a problem with wildness. It's history, as Audra just laid out for us, is not pretty, you know, you just have to think about the, the term wilding and the way in which it was used, for example, in relationship to the Central Park uh, five, as if this was, oh yeah, we know exactly what this means. Wilding means young black men running around uh, potentially raping people. So the category has almost entered into various lexicons of white supremacy um, unchallenged. So the task is to try to make the term do some of the work that is available without simply returning to the logics that underpin it. And I think Audra's comment just laid out how difficult that can be and how of necessity you will fail in trying to do this. There's a, there's a, there's a way in which wildness cannot be rehabilitated. Final point, I love what you are saying, Audra, about as you sit there with, I don't know if it's a cat or a dog, something, animal. Um, you know, of course, like animals have had many different household functions in different communities, but the version of the pet that we've settled upon that is part of a kind of industrial investment in family animal intimacy um, is the one that, you know, is sort of the target uh, of my wrath precisely because there's a sense that we are touching the animal, we are close to the animal, we are helping the animal, rescuing the animal when we bring it into our household. And in fact, the opposite is the case. It is the place where the wild goes to die is when you bring the wild, in, you know, into your family space and then, you know, farm out the labor of walking it to somebody else um, and, and, you know, feed it wretched pellets or whatever. So I, I'm also amazed at how attached people are to the sense of themselves as good in relationship to this particular relationship to the animal. I mean, I think you can tell that the book is not, it, it's not a geopolitical exploration of wildness. It, it, it doesn't, I, although, you know, hearing Audra speak, I'm thinking, wow, you, you could do this incredible sort of historical uh, genealogy uh, of wildness. It is much more interested in um, the, not just the metaphorics of wildness, but the way in which um, wildness is at the edges of many of the kind of political formations that we have been, um, you, you know, that we, we are the result of. Um, and that it it's within probably a whole set of these uh, foundational discourses that precisely because they are not articulated, um, do all kinds of work beneath the surface of um, manifest political discourse. 
the zombie, just as an example, is used all over the place. I mean, there's like 15 anthologies on the zombie. There's There are zombie economies, there are zombie governments, there are zombie populations, there are zombie um, apartment buildings. David Harvey uses this term to talk about apartment buildings that are left empty um, within zombie capitalism, you know. So I, I actually am talking about the aesthetic conceptual function, if you like, of wildness. In relationship to the zombie though, I do talk about the way in which the zombie um, becomes a figure within American popular culture precisely by a fantasy of what the zombie is in the context of Haiti and the early zombie films were all about Haiti um, that, that misrecognizes the fact that in Haitian culture, the zombie is the fantasy of a an enslaved person that they will uh, die and still be enslaved, and what it you know how how will slavery ever um, be escaped? Um, and I try to look at the way in which this uh, logic of zombieism makes its way through American popular culture. And I spend a lot of time, for example, on Night of the Living Dead, which is an extraordinary film from 1968. Um, that in many ways is a protest film in which the, the guy who plays um, the, the lone black survivor of a zombie apocalypse was the first black lead actor in an American uh, popular film. And of course, in Night of the Living Dead, he's sequestered with a group of white people in a farmhouse. And one by one, the white people die. And at the end, when dawn comes, the police arrive and he's like, hey, I've survived. He leaves the house and the police see him as a zombie and shoot him. So this collapsing of the zombie into the figure of the black man is in fact a, um, a powerful, a powerful statement about uh, both, both white supremacy at that moment um, and about, um, you know, protest, protest culture and the inability to recognize protest culture um, as a, a kind of, you know, powerful response. So I do dig into the Haitian roots to find out how the zombie has entered in as a kind of obsessive uh, site within uh, contemporary American popular culture. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Jack Halberstam's Wild Things. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Dustin Stewart's Futures of Enlightenment Poetry. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscom. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com.